And now, part two of the inquest, Ghostbusters. The success of Ghostbusters the video game got Sony's attention, to say the least. Here was an instantly recognizable property under their umbrella with well-established symbols, a logo, a theme song, and several key props that had barely been capitalized upon for nearly two decades. The fans were always there, and in fact, they'd taken up the franchise mantle on their own. During this time, numerous fan films and other projects had come to fruition through unofficial Ghostbusters chapters all around the world. So why should they get to have all the fun? Quietly, the studio began the process of earnestly restarting the Ghostbusters property in its original medium, film. As previously discussed, while the first film wasn't really created with the sequel in mind, the concept lent itself to one, and with so much time having passed since its last effort in theaters, Sony finally believed the world was ready for more Ghostbusters. But of course, it wouldn't be that easy. For starters, not much had really changed in the fractured relationship between Bill Murray and his fellow castmates. Though they had reunited for the video game, Murray was familiarly problematic during that process, often showing up late for recording sessions, if he showed up at all, and he was still disapproving of another attempt at going back to the Ghostbusters well in theaters. Ackroyd and Ramus had essentially retired from acting to pursue other passions, the former had become the figurehead of a boutique vodka brand, while the latter mostly moved behind the camera as a director, often for episodes of the wildly popular sitcom The Office. Many of the supporting cast weren't interested either, with Rick Moranis notably retiring from acting altogether, and of course after the disappointing experience that was the film's sequel, Ivan Reitman had been very clear that he was not interested in further exploring the paranormal world he and the cast had created in the 80s. Put simply, if Sony wanted more Ghostbusters, it was likely they would have to do it without, well, the Ghostbusters. At this point, it probably won't take much convincing for you to believe that the prospect of a studio-backed revival of a massive property being opened up to a casting call of directors and writers brought basically everyone in Hollywood out of the woodwork. By the 2010s, a majority of the young people working there had grown up on Ghostbusters, and the possibility of being involved in the franchise's resurgence was too good to pass up. There were even rumors, later confirmed by leaked studio emails, that at one point Sony was seriously considering a crossover film between the Ghostbusters and the extraterrestrial-oriented Men in Black franchise, which would then have also been incorporated into their revival of 21 Jump Street with stars Jonah Hill and Channing Tatum. Now, frankly, there were worse actors who could have been considered for the flight suits and proton packs. But probably the most notable among these hopefuls was screenwriter Max Landis, son of the aforementioned legendary director John Landis, who had garnered recognition as the scribe for 2012's found-footage superhero film Chronicle. Landis's past that the next Ghostbusters would bring the story forward to the present time and focus on a young new team of Ghostbusters from New York City coming into conflict with their flashier Los Angeles counterparts, as well as a cult of ghost rights activists and, of course, a universe-threatening paranormal entity. The original cast would have varying levels of involvement, while Murray's Venkman would only be seen in a brief cameo, and Ramus's death accounted for the near-total lack of Egon, who had also passed in the script, though one of the new NYC Ghostbusters would be his daughter. Ackroyd and Hudson would return in more fleshed-out supporting roles to pass the torch onto the new team. Like Ghostbusters the video game, Landis's version of what would ostensibly be Ghostbusters 3 would continue the legacy of the previous two films while also setting the franchise up for future installments. 
Sadly, all of this information is only available because Max Landis didn't get the job. Consequently, he released his script onto the internet to be read for free, as it no longer constituted anything more than well-written fanfiction. Instead, Sony hired Paul Feig, director of the smash comedy Bridesmaids, to helm the new Ghostbusters project as both co-writer and director. Feig was an interesting choice, though not a totally unconventional one. Like Ramis and Aykroyd before him, Feig was actually better known as an actor for most of his career. However, he was also credited with creating the cult classic series Freaks and Geeks, a teen comedy slash drama that only managed a single season at NBC, but managed to capture the feeling of a generation in much the same way the Wonder Years had before it. The show was witty, sardonic, and heartfelt. Frankly, it was very similar in tone to Ghostbusters, and if Feig could bring that kind of energy to the new project, perhaps things would work out after all. In 2016, Sony released Ghostbusters into theaters. No, you're not hearing that incorrectly, and it wasn't some cash-grab re-release of the 1984 classic either. The title of Paul Feig's film, which was initially assumed to be the third entry of a continuing franchise that had been awakened from its decades-long slumber, was in fact just Ghostbusters. And yet the film's first trailer directly acknowledged its predecessors as though it was the next sequel in the series. Thirty years ago, four scientists saved New York, the preview began. This summer, a new team will answer the call. And thus began a series of confusing choices, to say the least. Disregarding the fastidious point that Winston Zeddemore was never officially a scientist in the first two films, by the time this trailer was released, it was already widely known that Paul Feig's Ghostbusters was not actually the next chapter of the original story. Practically, it was set to be much closer to a reboot than it was a sequel, especially in terms of plot structure. The movie follows three fringe scientists, ousted from their academic careers, who team up with a fourth, more average person to launch a spectral extermination business in New York City and get caught up in a paranormal plot that threatens reality which they have to foil to save the day. Tale as old as time. Well, 30 years old at that point anyway, give or take. There were some minor variations in the iconography. The car became a hearse, for example, and the coveralls had orange safety stripes, but ultimately all were present and accounted for in some form or fashion. The film's primary antagonist was a bit of a departure, a pathetic hotel bellhop and occultist who schemes to become a ghost himself and lead the ectoplasmic apocalypse by weakening the barrier between our reality and the netherworld, but his final goal was essentially the same as that of Gozer's. All told, the movie was more or less a retelling of its progenitor, with very little differentiation between them. Except for the fact that this time, the four principal actors were all women, that is. Now, it is important to recognize up front that an awful lot was made of these casting decisions, especially on the internet among a certain contingent of people, but the reality of the situation is that they were objectively good choices on paper. Kristen Wiig, much like Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray before her, was an alumnus of Saturday Night Live, where both Kate McKinnon and Leslie Jones were still active cast members, and Wiig carried considerable star power as well, as she had previously worked with Paul Feig on Bridesmaids. So too had Melissa McCarthy, a comedic powerhouse in the style of Chris Farley, but from the mid-2010s, who rounded out the four leads. Naturally, though, because it was 2016, this quote-unquote feminizing of the Ghostbusters was met with an uproar. Critics of the decision decried it, and by extension, Feig, all four women, and, you know, the film itself, as pandering to perceived political correctness, despite the fact that 
They'd yet to even watch the movie since it was still well unreleased when the casting was first announced. Some went as far as to claim the new film would somehow ruin their childhood memories of the original. Now, importantly, it must be noted these women weren't even playing the same characters as Murray, Aykroyd, Ramis, and Hudson. Surrogates, perhaps, but not literal one-to-one -one reboots of the iconic Ghostbusters. Ironically, there was plenty of legitimate criticism to levy against 2016's Ghostbusters without stooping to casual misogyny. Primarily, it didn't seem to know what it was or wanted to be. There was evidence the movie was a reboot of the series. In addition to the aforementioned elements, the first film's three remaining leads are all present, as is Ramus, by way of a bust on a university set, though none of them play their original characters of Venkman, Stance, and Zetamore. But the movie's promotional material in the lead-up to its release, especially early on, very much made it seem like a continuation of what fans had come to know and love, and that simply wasn't accurate. For longtime fans of the series, this was a baffling decision. Yes, Murray had been difficult to corral, and Aykroyd's writing had always needed some time in someone else's oven to get it just right, but they were still the Ghostbusters, and trying to replace them, even if that wasn't exactly what was happening, was never going to receive a warm welcome. Perhaps all of this would have been more tolerable if the film's tone had been more similar to that of the first two, but this was also untrue. While Paul Feig, who had created Freaks and Geeks, might have written and directed something closer to the 84 blockbuster and its counterpart, the Paul Feig, who just dropped bridesmaids into the zeitgeist and set the bar for women in comedy, took a very different approach. Sure, Feig's Ghostbusters were smart and funny in their own way, but the prolonged lowbrow elements of his script, like McCarthy being thrown around by a faulty proton pack for seemingly minutes, stood in stark contrast to the constant quipping and laid-back zingers in Aykroyd and Ramis' writing. Where Rick Moranis had once played Louis Tolley as a lovable goofball who still had a brain, Chris Hemsworth played the new Ghostbusters administrative assistant Kevin, just Kevin, apparently, as a man who legitimately named his dog Michael Hat, seemingly just so Feig and his co-writer Katie Dippold could make a joke about, brace yourself, Mike Hat. Feig and Dippold had certainly struck a chord among movie-going audiences with their own brand of comedy, but applying that to an entrenched franchise to some looked like a classic case of the square peg just not fitting into the round hole. Many level-headed critics will later point out the movie likely wouldn't have received so much backlash if it just hadn't been intended as a Ghostbusters film. So without the continuity of a beloved franchise or its pacing and framework, what exactly did we get from 2016's Ghostbusters? Unfortunately, that will always be a difficult question to answer. So much of the movie's reception was colored by ridiculous fault-finding regarding the gender of its stars that audience reviews were all over the place, often coming from the extreme negative end of the spectrum or the overly positive to then counteract this. Paul Feig and his cast, Leslie Jones particularly, fought back through social media, an understandable response if not an entirely reasonable one as it mostly served to just stoke the flames. And of course, all of this naysaying led to a financial fiasco. While the film pulled in nearly $230 million worldwide, it cost well over half of that just to produce, and an inflated marketing budget added to that already bloated number. Sony had already stated the movie would need to make at least $300 million just to break even. Director Paul Feig said he projected a half a billion would be the best case scenario, but his Ghostbusters made less than half of that lofty goal. The mediocre box office performance, likely as a result of criticism both valid and otherwise, was the nail in the coffin for the new Ghostbusters. Though Feig and his stars had signed on for a three-picture deal, those other potential stories would never see the light of day. 
Over time, Sony quietly renamed the film with the subtitle, Ghostbusters Answer the Call, to distance it from the originals. When studio-produced box sets of the films emerged, Answer the Call was conspicuously absent. In fact, the only time that Wig, McCarthy, McKinnon, and Jones' characters of Aaron Gilberg, Abby Yates, Jillian Holtzman, and Patty Tolan were ever utilized again in any official capacity was in a non-canonical IDW comic book series. The studio's writing on the wall was as plain as day. These characters are Ghostbusters, yes, and this is technically a Ghostbusters film, but they're not THE Ghostbusters. And it was an important message to send because as it turned out, surprisingly perhaps, Sony still wasn't finished with the franchise. In the run-up to the 2016 film's release, Sony made another exciting announcement, because at the time, of course, both prospects were still exciting. They had formed a new division of their production company devoted entirely to ghostbusting. Ghost Core would tackle any and all new Ghostbusters projects, from movies to video games, television series to merchandising, and everything in between. At the time, both Ivan Reitman and Dan Aykroyd were co-heads of the division. Its formation came about well into production on Paul Feig's film, and so there wasn't really much they could do about that, even if it was credited as the core's first official project. Aykroyd would later confirm he believed the issue with Answer the Call was entirely financial, crediting the actors, but citing Feig's need for expensive reshoots that Aykroyd himself had portended. Since then, Ghost Core has announced, or at least discussed the possibility of, a variety of other projects, including a new animated series, but their big success has been in returning the Ghostbusters to their roots. In November of 2021, Sony and Ghost Core released Ghostbusters Afterlife, a proper sequel to both Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2, directed by none other than Jason Reitman, son of longtime series director Ivan. The film tells the story of single mother Callie and her children, Trevor and Phoebe, inheriting a rundown dirt farm in Oklahoma from Callie's estranged father after his untimely passing. But all is not as it seems. Callie's father was Egon Spangler, and his quote-unquote farm was essentially a front for the former Ghostbuster to set up shop outside of a mine owned by one Evo Shandor. Soon, the family, along with local school teacher Gary Gruberson, Phoebe's classmate podcast, named so because he has a podcast naturally, and Trevor's love interest, Lucky, find themselves caught up in the rising tide of supernatural chaos, and only by uncovering Egon's secrets can they hope to subvert the specters, with a little help from some of Spangler's old friends from work, of course. Five years after the 2016 debacle, Ghostbusters Afterlife was a bomb upon the franchise. It boasted star power by way of celebrated actors Paul Rudd, Carrie Coon, and Finn Wolfhard, but the real standout was McKenna Grace, who played Egon's granddaughter, Phoebe Spangler. Despite the ensemble cast in the film, Phoebe is clearly intended to be the protagonist, as it is she who picks up where her ghostbusting grandfather left off. Grace portrays the character in such a way audiences can easily believe her being a part of the Spangler bloodline, picking up on some of Egon's charming tics from the original films while still being her own person. Moreover, Afterlife did what Answer the Call chose not to do. It continued the Ghostbusters legacy. Some critics would argue the new film did so to a fault, and that Afterlife is much less a comedy than the first two films in the series, and more of a hero-worship drama about a bygone era. And this is not entirely untrue, but audiences still flock to it. While Afterlife made a bit less at the box office overall compared to Answer the Call, it also came to theaters in the midst of a global pandemic, and perhaps more importantly, it only cost about half as much to make. In all, audiences sent a clear message in response to this offering. We would rather have an emotional, heartfelt chapter of the original story than perhaps a funnier beginning to a new one. 
And yet, Afterlife still very much was both the epilogue of the original Ghostbusters and simultaneously the origin story of newcomers. Ackroyd, Hudson, and yes, even Murray reprised their iconic roles for the film, showing up at the 11th hour to save Callie and company from the return of Gozer and the Terror Dogs. And they weren't alone. Through the magic of special effects, Harold Ramis, or Egon Spengler at least, returned to the big screen one last time to guide his granddaughter's hand in throwing a particle stream right into the villainous ghouls. In the film's post-credit scenes, Winston, now shown to be a successful businessman in his own right with quite a bit of expendable capital, purchases the iconic firehouse back from an unnamed coffee company and has the somewhat restored Ecto-1 brought in for some much-needed repairs. It was a hint of things to come. Following Afterlife's positive response, Ghost Corps announced another direct sequel would hit theaters during the 2023 holiday season. At long last, the Ghostbusters were back in business. I'm not fond of pulling back the curtain too much on this show. When I started the inquest, I intended it to be a very unique Podzilla 1985 experience, the only program in our repertoire that was scripted in advance and not approached from multiple, primarily opinionated perspectives. I've intentionally avoided referring to myself in the first person as often as possible. The focus isn't meant to be on me, but rather on the subject matter. And yet, as I noted way back at the beginning of this, we have so little control over the creative process, don't we? I was born at the height of Ghostbusters mania. I grew up with Ghostbusters movies in theaters, cartoons on my television, action figures in my toy chest. I had Ghostbusters birthday parties with balloons for the kids, no less. I watched Extreme Ghostbusters as it aired in real time. I played the video games, both good and bad. My interest in the series waxed and waned, but it never disappeared. In 2014, my mother-in-law gifted me the Lego Ecto-1 for Christmas. Years before the Afterlife tie-in version of the Unmistakable Vehicle, this was a much smaller Ecto-1, scaled to size for the Lego minifigure versions of Venkman, Stance, Spangler, and Zetamore with which it came. I spent the entirety of that Christmas morning putting it together, reminiscing about a childhood spent running around my parents' home firing a foam-tipped proton pack at imaginary ghosts. I mention all of this to say I didn't pick this topic for the inquest arbitrarily. I've been steeped in a myriad of pop culture for over 30 years now, but Ghostbusters has been the most consistent ingredient in my stock. Even still, this was initially the most difficult episode for me to write. Not because I didn't know what to say, but because I didn't know when to stop. The journey was obvious, but the destination unclear. Over the course of the two months that it's taken me to write this, I've often wondered if this was what Dan Aykroyd felt like when he began writing the original Ghostbusters script. Sure, it was cumbersome and ungainly, but those issues were a direct result of the passion and fervor that Aykroyd injected into the project. This wasn't someone trying to create the next mega-hit summer movie. This was a man with a unique position of having a deep personal interest that he wanted to share with the world in a funny, intelligent, and sometimes kind of scary way, simultaneously having the privilege and clout by which to do so on a global scale. And the world responded to his attempt by saying, we are ready to believe you.
The Inquest was written, researched, created, and produced by me, Hunter Hendricks, with music provided royalty-free. Check out the full slate of Podzilla 1985 podcasts from tabletop RPG playthroughs on PZ85 Plays to the weekly top fives on Podzilla After Dark and all of our great specials like discussions of the paranormal on I Want to Believe right now at Podzilla1985.com. You can also keep up with the network on our Facebook page and subscribe to our shows on your favorite podcasting service.